I'm Marty Moscoane, and welcome to The Connection. It's Super Bowl Sunday this weekend, and football fans are eagerly waiting for the matchup between the Philadelphia Eagles and the Kansas City Chiefs. Here in Philadelphia, fans are sporting their Eagles jerseys and hoping, really praying, that Jalen Hurts can lead the team to victory. But if you care about sports in the city, you are also preparing to have your heart broken into a million pieces. Well, today on The Connection, we want to explore the mindset of the fan even beyond sports. Why do so many get so emotionally wrapped up with a team or a famous person, a band, a TV series, an idea, even a product? But first things first, Sunday's big game and joining us from Phoenix, Arizona is Marcus Hayes, sports columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer. Marcus, nice to have you with us on The Connection. Well, thank you. Thank you very much uh, for having me. It's quite a uh, quite an interesting topic you got going on. <laughs> it sure is, and you're going to get us started. What's the mood out there? Of course, uh, Phoenix, Arizona, uh, allegedly neutral territory. What's the mood? Uh, a lot of confidence. Tons of Eagles fans out here already, but a lot of confidence, a lot of, uh, a lot of people thinking that it's going to be not a walkover, but a, a good win against the best team in the AFC, the Kansas City Chiefs much different than 2017 when people were praying that they beat Bill Belichick and Tom Brady. is a much different vibe. Do you describe yourself as a fan? I mean, you're a sports columnist. You've been a sports writer, supposed to have some kind of dispassionate um, approach to the game. Are you a fan, Marcus? No, not at all. Um, anybody who does my job and is a fan should recuse themselves. Um, mm-hmm. what, what happens is if you're a fan of the team you cover, especially – you tend to be biased when they're good, but you tend to get really angry when they're bad. And it becomes difficult to be objective in the judgment of that team. So, yeah, I know that that's kind of an epidemic, especially on TV, but it's incredibly inappropriate and it affects the journalism. So, no, I'm I'm not a fan of any team. The last team I really cared about was when I was in high school and I loved Dr. J and Maurice Cheeks and those Philadelphia 76ers. And I was a New Yorker, so that's... that's oh, my goodness. <laughs> that must have been hard for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it was, it was interesting. I bet. Do Philadelphia sports fans deserve their reputation for rowdiness? We know about pelting Santa Claus with snowballs. For a while at Veterans Stadium, there was a jail, a courtroom, and a judge for those out-of-control fans. What do you think explains the kind of passion associated with Philadelphia sports fans? Um, well, you know, Philadelphia has been frustrated, and it really started in 1964 when the Phillies collapsed, and fans in general in Philadelphia began to think, when is it ever going to be our turn? You know, it's changed since really the, well, I guess, the 80, the 1980 season, the, you know, the 80 Phillies, the 83 Sixers, and we're in kind of a golden era with a lot of the teams right now. But the DNA of the Philly fan is frustration and anger, and we've seen it play out. You know, we've seen it play out in, you know, yeah, there was a courthouse in the there was a, a <laughs> courthouse in the vet, and there needed to be a courthouse in the vet. And the argument that Philly fans aren't the only ones isn't a good enough argument for me. They the Philly fans need to be better, but fans in general need to be better. Do you think for Philadelphia fans that it's going to take some getting used to having winning teams or teams that are doing really, really well? <laughs> um, yeah, the, uh, it, it, it switches quickly. If you look at Boston, Boston was in kind of a trough years ago, but then the Celtics and the Patriots and the Red Sox and the Bruins even became really, really good. And now there's a sense of entitlement almost. 
So it, it flips. And then if you're not a contender every year, you get you get angry. I, fans just te- generally tend to be unsatisfied if they're not on top. But I mean, that's that's the that's conflict is drama, and people like drama. And how important is a, a fan or a stadium full of fans to the team playing on the field? How does that work? Well, it's interesting. I mean, the Super Bowl is always usually the worst crowd because you only have about ten thousand people invested in the two teams. But, you know, they're, they're thinking about moving the NFC and AFC championship games to neutral sites, which I think is a horrible idea because it not only kind of penalizes or takes away the big advantage of, you know, winning so much during the season, it also <clears throat> turns it into a sterile environment. It takes away the environmental advantage, whether you're in Seattle or Philadelphia or Kansas City, stadiums that are great to play in if you're the home team. Um, so, yeah, it's a huge advantage, and both the Phillies during their World Series run this year and the Eagles during their Super Bowl run this year benefited from it, talked mm-hmm. about it, and the Phillies even recruited from it. You know, there Trey Turner, the shortstop that they signed for $300 million, says, I can't wait to play in front of these fans, and they're a big reason why I wanted to be mm-hmm. here. How do you see, final question to you, Marcus, how do you see then the matchup on Sunday? You know, uh, I, I think the Eagles' defense has been underrated even though it's the number two defense in the league and it's given up 14 points in two postseason games total. You know, Patrick Mahomes is the best quarterback in the world right now, and he's going to score points, but Jalen Hurts is probably top five. So mm-hmm. I see it as a maybe a 35-27 game, which uh, several people have told me was exactly exactly the same difference in Super Bowl 52, an eight-point difference. So maybe that's Philadelphia's magic number. Well, Marcus, as always, thanks for joining us uh, here on WHYY. That is Marcus Hayes, sports columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer, who is currently in Phoenix to cover the game. Marcus, thanks so much. All right, thanks for having me. You're very welcome. We do want to talk more about fandom, uh, not spending the whole hour on sports or even on the Eagles. But let me just play another or play a clip before I introduce our other two guests. And this is from WHYY's Digital Studios. When they talk to Philly fans about their passion, their history and their infamous celebrations. And this was right after the Eagles won the NFC, securing their spot in the Super Bowl this weekend. Passion. The upbringing of their, you know, goes down from generation to generation. It's in our blood, that's it. It's in our DNA. We can't help it. We have unity. We're cohesive. You know, we're the home of the underdogs. We, we needed something like this to bring us all together. And the Eagles have been, and been, been our champions. It's a Philly thing. Come on, man. <laughs> It's a Philly thing. Let me introduce our two guests. Sitting across from me is uh, Lynn Zubernis, and she's clinical psychologist, professor at Westchester University, happens to be the author of seven books on fan psychology. And Lynn, nice to have you with us on The Connection. Thanks. Nice to be here. Uh, very nice to have you with us. And also joining us is Adam Earnhardt, and he's professor of communication at Youngstown State University, where he studies sports and fan behavior. Adam, nice to have you with us on The Connection as well. Hey, thanks for having me. You're very welcome. And and since you cover sports and sports fan behavior, Adam, how do you see Sunday's game? <laughs> uh, it's my favorite time of year. That's how I see it. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, aside from actually enjoying watching the Super Bowl and, you know, all the commercials and all that kind of good stuff, halftime right. show, um, I get a really great opportunity to study sports fans. So, you know, that's that's always my 
This is this, and probably a, you know a few other championships uh, are are my favorite time of year. I don't want to spend the whole hour on sports fans, but since you mentioned them, Adam, how do you see them? So within the world of fandom, is there something unique about a sports fan? Yeah, actually, well, the whole reason why I got interested in studying sports fans was because of my mom, and not because she said you should study sports fans. I I'm six foot eight, three hundred fifteen pounds. And oh I, wow. Uh, and I and I I don't wear it well anymore. But uh, you know, thirty years and eighty pounds ago, I was uh, recruited to play basketball for a college up in Rochester, New York, and we were poor. But so my mom uh, would videotape my games and send the videotapes off to coaches. And um, uh, so one of the coaches said, "I got to call this guy right away." And you know, he said, "I would love for you to play here, but only if your mother comes." And I'm like, "Well, why?" <laughs> And she says, because I can hear her screaming for you in the background of these videotapes that she sent of you playing basketball. That's the kind of fan that we want. And I'm like, oh, this this makes perfect sense. So uh, she was kind of my inspiration for studying sports fans um, from, from the very beginning because I've always been interested about what what drives them to do these things. I, I actually see um, Philly fans in a little bit different of a light than, than other um, researchers and critics. Of, of sports fans out there. I see Philly fans as a uh, very passionate, very confident group of fans um, that, that know how to celebrate. Um, I, when I told a few <laughs> of my how? friends that I was yes. going to be on your show, yeah. they, uh, I, I heard this, uh, one of them say, please be nice. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, well, what do you mean? So far, like, so good, Adam. Talking about Philly fans, please be nice. Well, hold on. Let me, let me get uh, Lynn in, in, on our conversation here on The Connection. And um, if I may say, you're not a sports fan or not much (laughs) of a sports fan and not much of an Eagles fan either. How do you see what's happening? I mean, I feel like a fan right now because you can't be in Philly without being caught up in it. And my son's a big fan. Other people in the family are fans. But no, I'm not a huge sports fan, but I am a huge fan. So what I see when I look around me is the similarities of what it means to be a fan, whether it's a fan of a sports team or a television show or an opera singer or whatever it might be, there's a lot of similarities. And that passion that Adam talked about is is one of them. Well, I would think, too, sort of belonging. I mean, if you're if you're a fan, you're, there are other fans in the world. And there's something about belonging to a group that sees things or cares about things in the same kind of way. Yeah, it's hugely powerful. I mean, we as humans have sort of an evolutionary need to belong. We need to feel like we're part of a group or life feels very unsafe because if you, you know, go back thousands of years, if you didn't belong to the group, if you were rejected by the group, you really weren't safe. So it's a very sort of primal, powerful thing, our need to belong. And it's harder than ever these days. We don't have all those social groups that we used to have that were easy to feel that sense of belongingness. So we look for it in other things. And fandom, because it's a community, is a way to get that sense of belongingness. Uh, Adam, I'd be curious whether whether you see that that way, this sense of belonging, oh, yeah. this well, powerful sense of belonging. It's the the motives that we have for being fans, regardless of what we're fans of, are are varied, but they always kind of like, like find their way back to two or three big ones, and that is, uh, and, and and Lynn had mentioned this, but this idea of of connectedness, of social utility. I mean, this idea that um, we our first fan base in some in some cases is our family. 
So we become fans of something in, in varying degrees because we we hear about it, we learn about it through our family or through friends. And so that's just another connection point, another touch point for us to find, find even uh, a deeper connection, a deeper belongingness to them than we, we would have otherwise. And this notion of family, and I'm, we're almost having a break here, Adam, but let me tell, or actually, Lynn, let me toss this back to you about how this can run in families. Yeah, and, and that goes for all kinds of fandoms. I mean, certainly you see multi-generational fandoms, people who are Eagles fans who talk about, you know, my grandfather and my father and me, and now my two-year-old is wearing his Eagles jersey. You see that in all kinds of fandom, though. I, I've been to a Star Trek convention for research, and I found the same thing. Multi-generational families going back three generations, and now the baby's in the stroller wearing, <laughs> you know, the Star Trek uniform. So it's it's pretty much the same. Well, let's take that short break, and then we'll get back to our connection here on The Connection, uh, talking with uh, Lynn Zubernis, and she's a psychologist professor at Westchester University, where she studies fan psychology. At Adam Earnhardt is with us as well, professor of communication at Youngstown State University, where he studies sports and fan behavior. We have much more to talk about after this very short break. Do stay with us. Go Eagles. We'll be right back. Supporting WHYY Penn Medicine, helping to find new cures for cancer. With life-saving clinical trials and advanced surgical techniques, Penn Medicine is offering more hope for patients everywhere. Learn more at PennMedicine.org slash cancer. Penn Medicine, what's next? I'm Marty Moss Cohen, and you're listening to The Connection here on WHYY. Diehard Eagles fans are donning their green team jerseys, getting out their lucky socks, and stocking up on chips and dip, preparing for the big game on Sunday. True confessions, I'm not a big Eagles fan, but it's hard not to get caught up in all the excitement. All this hoopla did get us thinking about fandom and what it means to be an ardent enthusiast, whether it's about a team or a band a famous person, a book, a TV show, a movie, even a product. What are the upsides and downsides of fandom? And what does it say about our need to belong and the power of identity? And again, talking with Lynn Zubernis and Adam Einhart. Let me play another clip from WHYY's uh, digital studios. This is Lamont Anderson, who goes by the nickname Monty G. And he's one of the many Eagle super fans, part of this uh, series on RWHYY uh, digital studios. This is how it is. I mean, it's a Philly thing. And with a team that we have this season, I mean, we, it's nothing else we can do but be hyped and be revved up and just freaking love this team and be all amped up and powerful, just thankful and grateful that we got a team that's taking us this far. We are great. We're doing our thing. We're living great. We got a great quarterback, a great coach. We got great players. And it gets no better than us. There's no other team better than us. You know, Adam, I really hope the Eagles win for uh, for his sake, for Monty's for this sake, guy, yeah. for this guy's sake. But it is so interesting to to hear that sort of level of belief and enthusiasm. So take that same clip and play it next year for whatever team is there, right? You know, because it is essentially a a, a carbon copy of what we hear every year. We're all passionate. We deserve this. We need. To, we're, we should be there. Um, I, we, we actually refer to this as an acronym we use called berging it's basking in the reflective glow right and so every team should be doing that i would imagine there are a lot of if you were to play that from a hmm. kansas city chiefs fan right now it would it would be very something very similar so 
Yeah, I, I really hope for that guy's sake and everybody else in Philadelphia that it turns out well. <laughs> yeah, me too. And I learned about burging, basking in ref- reflected glory or glow. And then there's something called corfing, cutting off yeah. reflected failure. Let me toss that to you, Lynn. What is that? That is a coping strategy for trying to deal with the fact that, unfortunately, we don't have our team win all the time. So people need to find a way not to have their own self-esteem tank when their team or the group that they identify with isn't successful. It's so reinforcing for us when our team is successful and is winning. We have this like vicarious sense of achievement. And it's there's research that shows that people actually have the same hormonal surges as the athletes on the field. So that's very reinforcing. We don't want to not have that. So people do need to have coping strategies in place for when, not that I'm saying this is going to happen to the Eagles, but when their team loses. I mean, it is interesting, Adam, you hear people saying, especially with a winning team, we're number one when we're a losing team, you know, you suck. (laughs) It sort of toggles between those two extremes. And blaming it on, on, you know, other forces in the universe that have stopped us from having this it's the refs it's you know blaming it on officiating or you know blaming it on the weather or some other reason why uh our team or they lost or whatever I mean, the, the 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 types of um uh, you know behaviors that we exhibit whenever something like that happens are are again pretty typical i mean we can map these out and say we ex- we expect to see these things happen when this team wins and when this team loses among certain fan bases. And, you know, unfortunately, one of the things that happens is, you know, with the, with the, whether it's a winning team or a losing team is occasionally you get into, you know, rioting and sure. stuff like that. But sure. uh, even, but that's, that's the one thing that, uh, you know, we, we still, we still continue to look at, but it still continues to be surprising. Well, and, and, and how, I guess, how common is that? And does it give fandom, Adam, a bad, a bad name? Deserve it or undeserve yeah. it? Yeah. Uh, well, there's a whole group of, people who study this that wouldn't look at the pro-social behaviors i mean how how are fans acting in ways that are actually benefiting you know the community and 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 celebrating their team in a in a a very positive way but on the flip side yeah i mean you have always have the bad actors right whether they're in the community or actually in the stadium themselves um you know and, and you just try to find ways to mitigate that mediate that and i think over the years um these groups of communities these fan communities have done a much better job of that Lynn, help us understand superstitious behavior, because we often see that among athletes, but we also know sports fans, they have their lucky socks, or, you know, there are certain rituals that they do on game day to make sure that their team wins. Help us understand what what that's all about. Uh, That's just a human thing. We are superstitious creatures. We tend to, we sort of evolve to when there's one instance that happens, but it's very important to us, we learn from that instance, and we either want to avoid that thing that bit us in the butt somehow, or we want to replicate all of the circumstances that are going into that so we can maybe make it happen again. Because we are that powerful? (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, we kind of feel like we have that power. I mean, the best way to not fall into that trap too much is to remind ourselves that we are really not Mm -hmm. that powerful, and a lot of this is very random. But don't tell that to my son, who's probably who's going, going to, to wear watching, his lucky jersey. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and those people, Adam, who are watching uh, the game uh, with their lucky socks on, what do you say to them? 
take a deep breath <laughs> and make sure you wash those socks at the end of the season. At least. <laughs> right. Well, that's um, true, right? And you know, there are a lot. You know, we talk about the parallels actually between fans and athletes. Um, you know, a lot of times, what fans do, like wearing the lucky socks over and over again, uh, they're doing that because they see that they're they're trying to mirror the behavior of their favorite athlete. Right. There are a lot of athletes, and Michael Jordan is one of the best examples of this. So Michael Jordan of um, the Chicago Bulls, NBA, you know, one of the greatest greatest of all time, um, talked about wearing the same underwear. <laughs> I'm not joking, for so many games in a row because he was sure that that was one of the reasons why they were on this winning streak. And I, I just thought to myself, oh, that just sounds I'm so glad gross. I didn't play but, <laughs> but it's really no different than what some fans <laughs> are doing too. So, and, and there is something, Lynn, sub tribal. Would you say, and even beyond football, just when it comes to sports or, or people competing with each other? Yeah, I mean, there's there is some research that suggests that this is a very tribal thing. You know, if you go way back in time, we were used to kind of rooting for our tribe's warriors who would go out and fight for and protect the tribe. And at the time, we were probably genetically related to that those warriors. So we really developed this intense connection with that tribe that goes out and protects us and fights for us. And, you know, we've evolved a lot, but we really haven't when you look at how our <laughs> brains work. So there's still that's part of why it's so important to us. Because it feels, what, life and death in it this does. sort of weird kind of it way? It feels life and death the same way that belongingness feels life and death. Because if you didn't belong to a group, you probably right. died. So we still retain the, that that power that these things have over us, even though it doesn't really make logical sense. And I hear a theme, Adam. It's belonging and identity, right? When we're talking about fan, fandom or fan behavior, fan, fan thinking. Yeah, so much identity is wrapped up into that. Um People know you as a fan of something. Uh, my family knows me as a fan of The Walking Dead, which is a you know a gory zombie show on TV. Is the best way to describe it. Right. Uh, and I've actually had the chance to go to you know one of their conventions in Atlanta, and which was probably my only non-sports fan kind of study thing. But uh, but they they know me as that, and so my identity has kind of been wrapped up in that. So now, whenever I dress up for Halloween, I'm dressing up as something related to you know The Walking Dead, <laughs> and this is very true of of, of sports fans. Um, you know when when those sports fans when that team takes a hit, you know it's whether it's something to re regarding an athlete. Um, you, know, you can talk about the Demar Hamlin case with the Buffalo Bills, for example. I mean, you talk about activating an entire community because their their identity is wrapped up in that in that team. That's a huge. That's a powerful motivator. Why The Walking Dead? Since you raised it, Adam. You know, <laughs> just because I happened to randomly turn it on one night, and I'm like, oh, this show is pretty cool. I just got into it, and then I there's a whole there's a and I don't know if you're familiar with it or not, but there's a whole not family really. element to it too that it was pretty interesting. Well, and Lynn, you're a fan of Supernatural, right? Yes, and I'm very familiar with The Walking Dead. They have some crossover actors, but it was the same kind of oh, experience yeah. for me, Adam, in that I was sort of watching it casually with my daughter, and then one day I was just like, oh my god, this show is amazing. Again, themes of family, themes of always keep fighting through adversity. Those are the kind of things that really speak to fans, because as you just said, fandom is about identity, and social identity theory tells us we establish our identity within the context of a group. So for many of us, 
the group that we are, you know, the fandom group that we belong to is where we establish our identity. So when that is threatened, either by a television show being canceled or Mm -hmm. a football team losing the Super Bowl, it feels like a very personal threat, which is why people do get so emotional about it. Let me just quickly reintroduce you. That's uh, Lynn Zuberna. She's a psychologist, professor at Westchester University. She's written seven books on fan psychology. Adam Earnhardt is with us as well, professor of communication at Youngstown State University, where he studies sports and fan behavior. And we are we are talking about fandom, the, the the mindset, the psychology of fandom here on The Connection. Adam, let me toss another sports question to you because I'm thinking about the kind of passion that uh, Chicago fans have for their losing Cubs team. How, how do, if we're talking about the, the mindset and the psychology, how do people learn to love a losing team or a losing franchise? Yeah, I always say try being a Pittsburgh Pirates fan. <laughs> okay. uh, it's really not that different. So I grew up in Pittsburgh in the 70s, and I was, I guess, kind of uh, lucky in a way. I mean, we, uh, Marcus was talking earlier about the, how spoiled the Boston fans are because they've got the, you know, the, the, the success of the Celtics and the Red Sox and the Patriots and yada, yada, yada. And I'm like, yeah, well, in the 70s in Pittsburgh, it was kind of that way. But then since then, it's been miserable. So there's a whole group of fans that have dropped the P from Pirates, and now they refer to themselves as the irate fans. Oh, very good. Yeah, I like that, huh? <laughs> yeah. And it, but, it, but it's very similar in terms of, uh, you know, the, the, the feelings that, again, the, the kind of the smack on the identity of being a Pirates fan it's very similar to what's happening with the Cubs, um, and, and and quite frankly, any team that has uh, you know losing a losing season after losing season, and if you look, if you're trying to equate this to the NFL, that would be the Cleveland Browns. I mean, they've kind of been like this running joke of oh, here we go again. We're on our you know 80th quarterback in 13 years, and you know now now what do we do? So yeah, that that kind of thing I can't. It, it's it's hard to remain a dedicated. Um, loyal, avid fan in in the face of that kind of adversity, but it's amazing how many people still do. Well, and it's interesting, Lynn, that people can bond around then this sort of losing reputation or losing persona. Yeah, and I think, you know, again, you can trace that back too. If your group is being threatened by the outside, that creates a lot of group cohesion. If you stick with Mm -hmm. that group, that creates a solidarity amongst those of you who are remaining. So that loyalty can remain. They say that uh, one of the things that happens if your identity is threatened is that that group that feels threatened kind of rallies. They show rallying behavior. And I think that's what you see when there is a losing streak going on. I mean – the Eagles have, have lost quite a bit yes, in the past, have. and my brother-in-law was still down there in the parking lot doing the tailgating. <laughs> I don't care how many times they had lost. So certainly that can happen. Well, there is something, Lynn, about winning or losing. I mean, in life, life is so full of sort of grays, you know, shades of gray. And here, either one, or maybe in soccer, that doesn't always work out. But nonetheless, you either won or you lost, and there it is. Yeah, and it's and it's hard for people to lose because again that that winning is so reinforcing. That vicarious achievement is something that people want. So it it's difficult for people to cope with losing when their identity mm-hmm. is really attached to that thing, especially if people 
are vulnerable in other ways. I mean, the research really shows we talked in the beginning about those fans who do, you know, blame things on the ref or throw things at rival fans. And that's really a minority of fans. But those fans have certain personality characteristics that make them more vulnerable to an identity threat like that. So they have a hard time dealing with those negative feelings that come with losing. And Adam, it's when, you know, caring or passion becomes something more destructive or even more more dangerous. Oh, yeah. Well, are you referring to like the rioting and things like yeah. that? Yeah, I mean there are, you yeah. know, there was a court in in Veterans Stadium because of unruly fans here in Philadelphia. Yeah, there's actually a, and I I had talked to your producer once, uh, Debbie about this. There's the um a, a guy in at Kent State University, his name's actually Jerry Lewis and he's not studying this anymore. He's retired, but he actually looked at at, at crowd contagion and this idea that um if you're in a situation like that, even in cases where teams have won, but if you feel like there's some kind of attack on that group, you kind of bond together as a group and respond. Mm-hmm. And sometimes those responses turn violent. And then you add alcohol, and and you know, then yeah. then then you've got um, some potential for things really going off the rail. Let me play one another clip. In fact, uh, we asked our listeners to call into the connection hotline and to tell us why they're a fan of a sports team or a band or a TV series or a celebrity. And this is Ross talking about being what fandom is like and how it's rather like a secret club. This is Ross from Philadelphia. And when I decide that I like something, I kind of just dive really deep and become obsessive over it. Right now, the past year, I've dove so deep into Star Trek. I've watched so many different shows. I read message boards. I'm a regular visitor on their website. I read Wikipedia articles about individual characters. I just love fandoms because it's this interesting shared thing that you have with millions of people that you never have met and never will meet, especially with Star Trek. I feel like I've opened the door to this secret club that I've heard about, but was never really privy to until about a year ago. I mean, Lynn, Trekkies are are famous, right? Or maybe notorious, I don't know, for their fandom. I think it depends on your perspective, yes. (laughs) Um, Yeah, the sort of the OG fandom that the first research on fan communities was done mostly in the Star Trek fandom. But I think anybody who has fallen in love with something and become a passionate fan can relate to what that person was saying. It, It is sort of like an obsession, not in the clinical sense, but in the sort of hyper fixation that people have. If you're a sports fan, one to know all the stats of all the players. If you're a Star Trek fan, wanting to know what each of the ships were like and what version of the Enterprise was happening at what time. Those similar dynamics play out in all kinds of fandom. I mean, becoming an, I mean, part of, of being a fan is becoming an expert, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there are certainly people who are more casual fans and are not as interested in those kind of things. I don't think it's 100% of fans. But because fans are so passionate, they tend to want to have all the information, collect all the things, identify as strongly as they can. So they, they do want to go after that knowledge. Yeah. How do you see that, Adam? Oh, I have deep respect for people who show up at, at, at Comic-Con dressed up sure. in like full Klingon gear. <laughs> I, I mean, that's a level of commitment that I only see. So, I, you know, there's a group of the, in, in football called the Professional Football Ultimate Fan Association. And these are a group of uh, very community-minded fans, but they all kind of come together once a year 
in Canton, Ohio, where the Pro Football Hall of Fame is, to kind of celebrate their love of their teams, but more importantly, celebrate their love of football. They come to Canton in full gear. I mean, they've, they spend hours and hours on makeup and get up. I mean, it's just, it's pretty remarkable. So that, that level of commitment is uh, uh, pretty amazing. But yeah, you see it um, translated in just about everything, whether it's, whether it's uh, you know, Star Trek or TV, music, sports, whatever. We'll tell you what, another very short break, and then we'll get back to our conversation here on The Connection. We're talking about fandom, what it means to be a fan, the kind of mindset of the fan. Of course, uh, the Super Bowl got us started, but uh, the more you think about fandom, the more you realize it's it's larger than that and really taps into a lot of really important issues about identity and belonging. Again, talking with Adam Earnhardt and with Lynn Zubernis. We're going to take a very short break, and then we'll be right back. So do stay with us. Supporting WHYY Penn Medicine, helping to find new cures for cancer. With life-saving clinical trials and advanced surgical techniques, Penn Medicine is offering more hope for patients everywhere. Learn more at PennMedicine.org slash cancer. Penn Medicine, what's next? At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Line takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Line wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moskowain talking with Adam Earnhardt. He's a professor of communication at Youngstown State University where he studies sports and fan behavior. Lynn Zubernis is with us here in our Philadelphia studio. She's a psychologist professor at Westchester University, and she's written, yes, seven books on fan psychology. Let me play one more clip, and this was another listener to The Connection who called into our hotline. This is Andrea explaining what it's like to be a fan of a professional sports team that's not the Eagles and it's not the 76ers. Let's listen. This is Andrea from Flower Town. I especially like um, the union and um, being a soccer fan. Being a soccer fan in our culture puts you a little bit on the outs, and I like that. I like feeling a connection to the world game and being a citizen of the world by rooting for um, our our professional soccer team while everyone around me is obsessed with baseball and football. We all choose our tribes and maybe even in sports. I'm a little bit of an outsider. That's so interesting, Lynn. Is And I think she sort of made the point for us, which is that by choosing a soccer team, she's being a bit of a more of an outsider here, certainly in the Philadelphia area. And a lot of fans actually would identify as in some way, at some point in their life, having felt like outsiders, which is one of the reasons they are looking for that sense of belongingness and community. A lot of people who are fans of sort of obscure things, Supernatural was a show that nobody was watching when I fell in love with it. And there was sort of a thrill to that, that feeling of, as she said, finding your people, finding your tribe and setting yourself apart that these are the only people that really understand me because we love this obscure thing, but we love it together. That brings a very powerful sense of belongingness. Did you ever sort of meet your fellow fans for Supernatural? I mean, where, where you could meet 
person to person? They actually have like 20 supernatural conventions a year. Truly. It is incredibly popular. (laughs) For a show that was not that popular, it ran for 15 seasons. So I've been to, at this point, hundreds of conventions and met people face to face, which adds a different layer to that sense of belonging Mm -hmm. community. But you can certainly get it also if just interacting online with other fans. Well, and I'm thinking too, Adam, about for for the fan, especially the sports fan, whether being in the stadium versus watching on TV, how that sense of belonging, maybe it's different, maybe it isn't. I just wonder how so many people can afford it if they're actually in the stadium sometimes. I mean, I I, I, I took my son to a game, uh, the Steeler, uh, the it was the last Steelers game of the season. Uh, I, you know, like I mentioned, I grew up in, in Pittsburgh in the 70s, so I was you know, kind of raised as a Steelers fan. And uh, he has become one, too, because Dad is, you know. So we, <laughs> we get to the game, last game of the season. It's up, you know, we're, we're, we're pitted against the Browns. And, you know, if we win and if a couple other teams lose, we make it in the playoffs. Well, that, that didn't all work out. But that's okay. We won. But my goodness, I got home. I, I had to check the bank account. I mean, really? I, the, the tickets, you know, themselves were, were pretty expensive. But then, you know, I'm, I'm you know, driving down from Youngstown to – to Pittsburgh, finding parking, buying a couple hot dogs and drinks and all that good stuff. You know, so it, it gets rather expensive to actually be in the stadium. And so for some people, they actually save, you know, all year long just to go to one game, yeah. which makes television access, you know, a whole lot more palatable. Like I feel like I can sit in front of the TV with a bowl of nachos and a beer and feel like I'm actually a little bit better connected to the game and feeling uh, uh, my wallet's a little fuller because of it. Which raises a question, Lynn, about if money changes things. And now, you know, you can bet on on sports, and, and that adds a whole other element to, to this experience. Yeah, there, there's a whole line of research on fandom that is connected to the research on leisure. Leisure is a whole research area in psychology in itself. And a lot of that is about access. So people have varying levels of access to the way they want to interact with their fandom and with other fans. But interestingly, you don't actually have to spend a lot of money. There's been research that that connection that can happen, you know, as long as you have the Internet, that connection that can happen, it's just as powerful when it happens that way. It's just as powerful, actually, if you're sitting on the couch with, you know, five or six of your friends watching the Super Bowl as if you're in the stadium. Certainly, there's a level of excitement and a level of thrill of, oh, I am here, you know, Hamilton in the room where it happens. Yes, exactly. There's, there's definitely that component. But people, people don't need to spend a lot of money to actually really indulge in their leisure pursuits. Marcus Hayes, our sports columnist at the top of the hour, was talking just about the power of fans for the players. And I'll toss that to you, Adam, just how that can, you know, to hear that roar of the crowd, what, what that can mean to a, a player or a team. Uh, it's it you know there's something about driving uh, uh, you know stadium attendance right if you if you don't have a full stadium it's not loud so you don't have that kind of uh, well you know we used to call it the the twelfth man although that sounds very gender specific but this idea that you know that that fan element actually can impact the other team's ability to uh, to to uh, call plays and so it actually. You know, they have to end up in some cases calling a timeout because they have to wait for the the crowd to calm down so that they can actually call their plays and execute. So, yeah, it is a huge element. And, and you'll see players who will actually 
pump their fists and raise their hands and look at the crowd and say, come on, make some noise. And, yeah. and because they know that that actually has a huge impact on the game. You know, Lynn, I'm thinking about the times when people, you know, are, let's say, fan of an individual and that individual does something terrible. This stuff happens. You know, what are, how does the hand, the fan sort of deal with taking their, their person that they put on that pedestal, their hero, um, when they find out that their hero has some skeletons, let's say, in their closet. So very painful and has happened very publicly with a lot of fandoms where people who really attach their identity to a particular fandom, the author or the actor or whatever it is, does something that is against their own ethical code, against their own moral code. So now they're in the position of, I've attached my identity to this, and it isn't what I thought it was. So some people at that point actually have to walk away, and it's extremely painful. It feels like a loss. They have to renegotiate their identity all over again. Some people go to great lengths to try to rationalize hanging on to that identity, which then creates a lot of intra-fandom drama as some fans make one decision and some fans make another. It ruins that cohesion, which was one of the most important things about it in the first place. Yeah, Adam, you want to add to that? I was just thinking about parasocial relationships. (laughs) I mean, I, I so uh, Lynn and and I'm sure there's a there's a vast uh, number of of scholars that look at parasocial relationships in all sorts of different areas of fandom. But, vast, you know, yeah, right. And it, <laughs> it feels like you know when something like that happens that it's you're you're you have this cognitive dissonance that's going on, right? You have this conflict within you, like I I I need to celebrate this person, but at the same time they just did this horrible thing, and so it's it's a huge contradiction sometimes for people, um, but in, in sports, you know, unfortunately it happens more than I care to say, yeah. and it's one of the things that fans struggle with all the time. But it is a struggle, as you're saying, if someone, Lynn, is so identified with, let's say, an individual, um, and the impulse, I guess, to deny, to say, no, this didn't happen, or to minimize it, to say somehow it, it, it didn't really matter, or excuse it, or explain it away. Yes, and you see, you do see that all the time, that it's just, it's so important, and it's such, it's an identity threat, right? We don't do well with identity threats, and so people will, yes, go to great lengths, denial, and rationalization, and making excuses, and it's one of the things that I study a lot is intra-fandom conflict and mm-hmm. how it happens. That is one of the major ways because it, it does go to morality and ethics, which fans generally sort of are, you know, they pride themselves on having that sort of ethical behavior. And this is something that puts fan against fan. Yeah, and I would think that, that never yeah, go ahead, Adam. Star Trek fans. <laughs> <laughs> is that true? Star Trek fans are they're they're, they're okay. Star Trek. I think um, it happens. I'm kidding. No, I'm no. kidding. <laughs> okay. Sarcasm, Adam. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just a little. I mean, just I mean, whether it's it's arguing over something that happens or what a character does, Adam. Even even like the 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 line of like the history that brought us to that point in the series, right, or in, in the in the culture. Yeah, Star Wars fans are, are pretty remarkable at this too because you had the, the you know the the different iterations of the the chapters, right? And in each one, there's it's almost generational, 
if you think about it. So there's generations of fans who grew up with this, with Star Wars in the 70s and then the films that came out in the 90s and then the more recent ones. And each group, each generation almost seems to have its own identity and they all conflict with each other. Right. You should know, Adam, that... Um uh, Lynn rolled her eyes when you said Star <laughs> no. Trek. No, Don't bring up Star Wars with a Star Trek fan. Yeah, I know. Star Wars. Go, go ahead. Explain yourself, Lynn. No, I, I actually, really, that eye roll was about. There's just been so much endless conflict in the Star Wars fandom because it is a canon that has so many iterations and so many generations of fans. And there has been such a profound disagreement as to what the show and the canon should be about. And yes, that's a great example of just how passionately people are attached to this identity. You know, to both of you, but to you, Adam, I'm sure there are people listening to us who who don't get it, you know, who are not fan, you know, particular particular fans of a a sport or a, a band or or even a, a TV show or or an individual, and and just feels as if. This is a waste of time. You know, why waste your time getting all worked up about something like this? Can you can you explain to them why why this is a good thing? Well, it, there's a there's a link between being a fan and being an aficionado of something. So right. there's if you have, you can be a fan of something, um, but not, you're not actually calling yourself a fan of it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of people who like to go fishing or hunting or love to smoke a cigar or love craft brew or wine. They're actually fans. They don't mm-hmm. call themselves fans all the time, but they're linked to that through that community. And it's really no different. So if you've got a passion for horticulture or if you've got a, pa- a passion for, uh, you know, you know, cooking or something like that, in, in some ways you're very much like a sports fan or a, a music fan or a theater fan because you've got that similar vibe, that similar connection that, that draws you to other people, that draws you together through this one thing. I mean, is there sort of competition, Lynn, between fans, which is, you know, the thing that I'm a fan of is is more worthy than what you're a fan of? Of course, yes. I mean, I, I would love to think of fandom as this sort of utopian thing where this community and belongingness and everyone gets along. But no, it's not because this is basic human group dynamics and in-groups and out-groups. Our humans are always going to sort themselves into in-groups and out-groups, and the in-group is going to police its boundaries by denigrating out-groups. So however you define the out-group, whether it's a fan of Star Wars instead of Star Trek or whether it's a fan of the Chiefs versus the Eagles, there is always going to be conflict there. But the thing that you originally asked, I mean, there are just big benefits. Being a fan is healthy in a lot of ways, too. Well, explain that. I mean, I think we've touched on it, but but – you know, to, to sum it up, yeah, how e- so? Even outside of the belongingness, fans generally tend to have higher self-esteem, more positive emotions. They are less lonely. Um, there's research about the uh, association between creativity and fandom. They tend to be less stressed because they're engaging in a leisure pursuit and sort of a form of play, which we know is very healthy for humans. So there's a lot of, you know, individual benefits outside of the communal benefits that make fandom very good for you. I think sometimes we start focusing on the downsides, but right. there's a lot of upsides. Yeah. Do you want to add to that, Adam? I mean, I think that's really an well, important point. I, lo- I love that. One of the things that Lynn said that just kind of the word that jumped out at me was the creativity side of this. Um, yeah. You know, I have I have four kids. Three of my my daughters, though, are very big into anime, and so they they create their own fan art. They they write their own fan fiction, and it's all kind of surrounded around 
this one, you know, whatever, whatever the anime show is. And by the way, I'm not going to try to mention them because I'm (laughs) terrible at trying to identify who they are and what they are, but, but man, are they creative whenever it comes to this? And they, and, and that again, they take that, whatever they've created and share it with that community on TikTok, Snapchat, wherever, Instagram, uh, and, and the rest of the community then comes and, and says, oh, that's beautiful. Would you draw something like that for me? And it, it's, it's this whole aspect of fandom that we don't even, I, I haven't even begun to explore. Well, and it's global in many ways, Lynn, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's beyond just the people in your orbit. It's it's the world. It, it is. I mean, fandom is global. And it, Adam's talking about such, a, such an important process. A lot of what I've studied is the validation that comes from the fan community mm. for your expressions of creativity. That is such a healthy thing. And it is so hard to find in the rest of the world. Fandom really is when it's not policing in-group, out-group stuff, sure. very supportive of all kinds of, you know, making change, exploring your identity, being creative. It's it's really unique. Well, because because there's this thing that people care about, right? I mean, that's the sort of the thing that holds people together. Yes, and there's there's different norms for relating within the fandom community than you see outside of the fandom community. And one of those is that encouragement of creativity and self-exploration, which is really powerful. Uh, we're almost out of time here, but Adam, you know, I'm I'm not much of a football fan. I'm now a diehard Eagles fan, you know, fair weather, I guess, is what I am called. But it is so interesting, and I think Philadelphia is a good example. You know, when a team like the Eagles is in the Super Bowl, you end up talking to people that you might not talk to on the train or just passing on the street or just giving a giving a high sign. It's it's a really powerful thing. Or even on social media. Or social I mean, media as well. it's become like this great equalizer, right? I mean, it's connected us with people around the world that we I've never would have been connected to otherwise. And so we can, you know, using a hashtag or, or tweeting or sharing something uh, is, is just another way to kind of build our connection, build our network with people we would never otherwise connect with. So, Adam, are you going to root for the Eagles or the Chiefs? <laughs> I'm <laughs> Putting you on the spot here. Because I grew up, I know, because I grew up in Pennsylvania, do? so I'm conflicted. But I have, um, my son is a huge Patrick Mahomes fan as an individual, like, athlete. He's a Steelers fan, but he's a Patrick Mahomes fan. It's mm-hmm. hard for me to say that to the Philly Philly fans okay. listening. We get it. And and I have a former student who is coaching for the Kansas City Chiefs. Sorry, it's okay. we forgive you. But I but I'm I, I'm so I'm kind of kind of stay neutral for a while. Adam, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today on Radio Times. Thank you. Too. Excuse me on on the connection. I knew I was going to say that. Adam Earnhardt, uh, professor of communication at Youngstown State University. Lindsay Burness, thank you for coming in. She's a psychologist, professor at Westchester University, author of seven books on fan psychology. And thanks so much for joining us on The Connection. Every week we explore a different aspect of human nature. You can email us at theconnection at whyy.org. You can also check out our website at whyy.org slash theconnection, where you can sign up for our newsletter and download the podcast. Our engineer today, Diana Martinez. Debbie Builder is the senior producer. Paige Murray Bessler, the producer of The Connection. I'm Marty Moscoe and have a great weekend. Join us next week for another edition of The Connection right here on WHYY.